Chapter 13, Part 2 of Practical Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth. Practical Religion by J.C. Ryle. Chapter 13, Part 2 Riches and Poverty. 4. Let us observe in the next place how precious a believer's soul is in the sight of God. The rich man in the parable dies and is buried. Perhaps he had a splendid funeral, a funeral proportioned to his expenditure while he was yet alive. But we hear nothing of fervour of the moment when soul and body were divided. The next thing we hear of is that he is in hell. The poor man in the parable dies also. What manner of burial he had we know not. A pauper's funeral among ourselves is a melancholy business. The funeral of Lazarus was probably no better. But this we do know, that the moment Lazarus dies he is carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, carried to a place of rest, where all the faithful are waiting for the resurrection of the just. There is something to my mind very striking, very touching and very comforting in this expression of the parable. I ask your especial attention to it. It throws great light on the relation of all sinners of mankind who believe in Christ to their God and Father. It shows a little of the care bestowed on the least and lowest of Christ's disciples by the King of Kings. No man has such friends and attendants as the believer. However little he may think it, angels rejoice over him in the day that he is born again of the Spirit. Angels minister to him through life. Angels encamp around about him in the wilderness of this world. Angels take charge of his soul in death and bear it safely home. Yes, vile as he may be in his own eyes and lowly in his own sight, the very poorest and humblest believer in Jesus is cared for by his Father in heaven, with a care that passeth knowledge. The Lord has become his shepherd, and he can want nothing. Psalm 23, verse 1. Only let a man come unfeignedly to Christ and be joined to him, and he shall have all the benefits of a covenant ordered in all things and sure. Is he laden with many sins? Though they be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Is his heart hard and prone to evil? A new heart shall be given to him, and a new spirit put in him. Is he weak and cowardly? He that enabled Peter to confess Christ before his enemies shall make him bold. Is he ignorant? He that bore with Thomas's slowness shall bear with him and guide him in all truth. Is he alone in his position? He that stood by Paul when all men forsook him shall also stand by his side. Is he in circumstances of special trial? He that enabled men to be saints in Nero's household shall also enable him to persevere. The very hairs of his head are all numbered. Nothing can harm him without God's permission. He that hurteth him hurteth the apple of God's eye, and injures a brother and member of Christ himself. His trials are all wisely ordered. Satan can only vex him as he did Job when God permits him. No temptation can happen to him above what he is able to bear. All things are working together for his good. His steps are all ordered from grace to glory. He is kept on earth till he is right for heaven and not one moment longer. The harvest of the Lord must have its appointed proportion of sun and wind, 
of cold and heat, of rain and storm. And then when the believer's work is done, the angels of God shall come for him, as they did for Lazarus, and carry him safe for home. Alas, the men of the world little think whom they are despising when they mock Christ's people. They are mocking those whom angels are not ashamed to attend upon. They are mocking the brethren and sisters of Christ himself. Little do they consider that these are they for whose sakes the days of tribulation are shortened. These are they by whose intercession kings reign peaceably. Little do they reck that the prayers of men like Lazarus have more weight in the affairs of nations than hosts of armed men. Believers in Christ who may possibly read these pages, you little know the full extent of your privileges and possessions. Like children at school, you know not half that your father is doing for your welfare. Learn to live by faith more than you have done. Acquaint yourselves with the fullness of the treasure laid up for you in Christ even now. This world, no doubt, must always be a place of trial while we are in the body, but still there are comforts provided for the brethren of Lazarus which many never enjoy. 5. Observe in the last place what a dangerous and soul-ruining sin is the sin of selfishness. You have the rich man in the parable in a hopeless state. If there was no other picture of a lost soul in hell in all the Bible, you have it here. You meet him in the beginning, clothed in purple and fine linen. You part with him at the end, tormented in the everlasting fire. And yet there is nothing to show that this man was a murderer or a thief, or an adulterer or a liar. There is no reason to say that he was an atheist or an infidel or a blasphemer. For anything we know, he attended to all the ordinances of the Jewish religion, but we do know that he was lost for ever. There is something to my mind very solemn in this thought. Here is a man whose outward life in all probability was correct. At all events, we know nothing against him. He dresses richly, but then he had money to spend on his apparel. He gives splendid feasts and entertainments, but then he was wealthy and could well afford it. We read nothing recorded against him that might not be recorded of hundreds and thousands in the present day who are counted respectable and good sort of people. And yet the end of this man is that he goes to hell. Surely this deserves serious attention. A. I believe it is meant to teach us to beware of living only for ourselves. It is not enough that we are able to say I live correctly, I pay everyone his due, I discharge all the relations of life with propriety, I attend to all the outward requirements of Christianity. There remains behind another question to which the Bible requires an answer. To whom do you live? To yourself or to Christ? What is the great end, aim, object and ruling motive in your life? Let men call the question extreme if they please. For myself I can find nothing short of this in St Paul's words. He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. 2 Corinthians 5, 15 And I draw the conclusion that if like the rich man we live only to ourselves, we shall ruin our souls. b. I believe further that this passage is meant to teach us the damnable nature of sins of omission. It does not seem that it was so much the things the rich man did, but the things he left undone which made him miss heaven. Lazarus was at his gate and he let him alone. But is not this exactly in keeping with the history of the judgment in the 25th of St. Matthew? 
Nothing is said there of the sins of commission of which the lost are guilty. How runs the charge? I was hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited me not. Matthew 25, 42, and 43. The charge against them is simply that they did not do certain things. On this their sentence turns. And I draw the conclusion again, that except we take heed, sins of omission may ruin our souls. Truly it was a solemn saying of good Archbishop Usher on his deathbed, Lord, forgive me all my sins, but especially my sins of omission. See, I believe further that the passage is meant to teach us that riches bring special danger with them. Yes, riches which the vast majority of men are always seeking after, riches for which they spend their lives, and of which they make an idol. Riches entail on their possessors immense spiritual peril. The possession of them has a very hardening effect on the soul. They chill, they freeze, they petrify the inward man, they close the eyes to the thing of faith, they insensibly produce a tendency to forget God. And does not this stand in perfect harmony with all the language of Scripture on the same subject? What says our Lord? How hardly should they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Mark ten twenty three and 25 What says St. Paul? The love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 1 Timothy six ten. What can be more striking than the fact that the Bible has frequently spoken of money as the most fruitful cause of sin and evil? For money, Achan brought defeat on the armies of Israel and death on himself. For money, Balaam sinned against light and tried to curse God's people. For money, Delilah betrayed Samson to the Philistines. For money, Gehazi lied to Naaman and Elisha and became a leper. For money, Ananias and Sapphira became the first hypocrites in the early church and lost their lives. For money, Judas Iscariot sold Christ and was ruined eternally. Surely these facts speak loudly. Money, in truth, is one of the most unsatisfying of possessions. It takes away some cares, no doubt, but it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. There is trouble in the getting of it. There is anxiety in the keeping of it. There are temptations in the use of it. There is guilt in the abuse of it. There is sorrow in the losing of it. There is perplexity in the disposing of it. Two-thirds of all the strifes, quarrels and lawsuits in the world arise from one simple cause, money. Money, most certainly, is one of the most ensnaring and heart-changing of possessions. It seems desirable at a distance. It often proves a poison when in our hand. No man can possibly tell the effect of money on his soul if it suddenly falls to his lot to possess it. Many and one did run well as a poor man who forgets God when he is rich. I draw the conclusion that those who have money, like the rich man in the parable, ought to take double pains about their souls. They live in a most unhealthy atmosphere. They have double need to be on their guard. D. I believe not least the passage is meant to stir up special carefulness about selfishness in these last days. You have a special warning in 2 Timothy 3, 1, 2. In the last days, 
perilous time shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous. I believe we have come to the last days, and that we ought to beware of the sins here mentioned if we love our souls. Perhaps we are poor judges of our own times. We are apt to exaggerate and magnify their evils just because we see and feel them. But after every allowance, I doubt whether there were more need of warnings against selfishness than in the present day. I am sure there never was a time when all classes in England had so many comforts and so many temporal good things, yet I believe there is an utter disproportion between men's expenditure on themselves and their outlay on works of charity and works of mercy. I see this in the miserable one-guinea subscriptions to which many rich men confine their charity. I see it in the languishing condition of many of our best religious societies and the painfully slow growth of their annual incomes. I see it in the small number of names which appear in the list of contributions to any good work. There are, I believe, thousands of rich people in this country who literally give away nothing at all. I see it in the notorious fact that few, even of those who give, give anything proportioned to their means. I see all this and mourn over it. I regard it as the selfishness and covetousness predicted as likely to arise in the last days. I know that this is a painful and delicate subject, but it must not on that account be avoided by the minister of Christ. It is a subject for the times, and it must needs pressing home. I desire to speak to myself and to all who make any profession of religion. Of course, I cannot expect worldly and utterly ungodly persons to view this subject in Bible light. To them the Bible is no rule of faith and practice. To quote texts to them would be of little use. But I do ask all professing Christians to consider well what Scripture says against covetousness and selfishness, and on behalf of liberality in giving money. Is it for nothing that the Lord Jesus spake the parable of the rich fool and blamed him because he was not rich toward God? Luke twelve twenty one. Is it for nothing that in the parable of the sower he mentions the deceitfulness of riches as one reason why the seed of the word bears no fruit? Matthew thirteen twenty two. Is it for nothing that he says, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness? Luke sixteen nine. Is it for nothing that he says, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, Call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, Neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbours, Lest they also bid thee again, And a recompense be made thee? But when thou makest a feast, Call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, And thou shalt be blessed. For they cannot recompense thee, For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Luke fourteen fourteen. Is it for nothing that he says, Sell that ye have and give alms? Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, A treasure in the heavens that faileth not, Where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. Luke twelve thirty three. Is it for nothing that he says it is more blessed to give than to receive? Acts twenty thirty five. Is it for nothing that he warns us against the example of the priest and Levite, who saw the wounded traveller but passed by on the other side? Is it for nothing that he praises the good Samaritan, who denied himself to show kindness to a stranger? Luke 10.34 Is it for nothing that St. Paul classes covetousness with sins of the grossest description, and denounces it as idolatry? Colossians 3.5 
and is there not a striking and painful difference between this language and the habits and feeling of society about money? I appeal to any one who knows the world. Let him judge what I say. I only ask my reader to consider calmly the passages of Scripture to which I have referred. I cannot think they were meant to teach nothing at all. That the habits of the East and our own are different, I freely allow. That some of the expressions I have quoted are figurative, I freely admit. But still, after all, a principle lies at the bottom of all these expressions. Let us take heed that this principle is not neglected. I wish that many a professing Christian in this day, who perhaps disliked what I am saying, would endeavour to write a commentary on these expressions and try to explain to himself what they mean. To know that almsgiving cannot atone for sin is well. To know that our good works cannot justify us is excellent. To know that we may give all our goods to feed the poor and build hospitals and cathedrals without any real charity is most important. But let us beware lest we go into the other extreme and because our money cannot save us, give away no money at all. Has any one money who reads these pages? Then take heed and beware of covetousness. Luke twelve fifteen. Remember, you carry weight in the race toward heaven. All men are naturally in danger of being lost for ever, but you are doubly so because of your possessions. Nothing is said to put out fires as soon as they are thrown upon it. Nothing, I am sure, has such a tendency to quench the fire of religion as the possession of money. It was a solemn message which Buchanan, on his deathbed, sent to his old pupil James I. He was going to a place where few kings and great men would come. It is possible, no doubt, for you to be saved as well as others. With God, nothing is impossible. Abraham, Job and David were all rich and yet saved. But, oh, take heed to yourself. Money is a good servant but a bad master. Let that saying of our Lord sink down into your heart. How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Mark 10:23. Well said an old divine. The surface above gold mines is generally very barren. Well might old Latimer begin one of his sermons before Edward VI by quoting three times over our Lord's words, Take heed and beware of covetousness, and then saying, What if I should say nothing else these three or four hours? There are few prayers in our litany more wise and more necessary than that petition. In all our time of wealth, good Lord, deliver us. Has any one little or no money who reads these pages? Then do not envy those who are richer than yourselves. Pray for them. Pity them. Be charitable to their faults. Remember that high places are giddy places, and be not too hasty in your condemnation of their conduct. Perhaps if you had their difficulties you would do no better yourself. Beware of the love of money. It is the root of all evil. 1 Timothy 6, 10 A man may love money overmuch without having any at all. Beware of the love of self. It may be found in a cottage as well as in a palace. And beware of thinking that poverty alone will save you. If you would sit with Lazarus in glory, you must not only have fellowship with him in suffering, but in grace. Does any reader desire to know the remedy against that love of self which ruined the rich man's soul and cleaves to us all by nature like our skin? I tell him plainly there is only one remedy, and I ask him to mark well what that remedy is. It is not the fear of hell. It is not the hope of heaven. It is not any sense of duty, oh no. 
the disease of selfishness is far too deeply rooted to yield to such secondary motives as these. Nothing will ever cure it but an experimental knowledge of Christ's redeeming love. You must know the misery and guilt of your own estate by nature. You must experience the power of Christ's atoning blood sprinkled upon your conscience and making you whole. You must taste the sweetness of peace with God through the mediation of Jesus and feel the love of a reconciled father shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost. Then, and not till then, the mainspring of selfishness will be broken. Then, knowing the immensity of your debt to Christ, you will feel that nothing is too great and too costly to give to him. Feeling that you have been loved much when you deserve nothing, you will heartily love in return and cry, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits? Psalm 116, 12 Feeling that you have received countless mercies, you will think it a privilege to do anything to please him to whom you owe all. Feeling that you have been bought with a price, no, no longer your own, you will labour to glorify God with body and spirit which are his. 1 Corinthians six twenty. Yes, I repeat it this day. I know no effectual remedy for the love of self, but a believing apprehension of the love of Christ. Other remedies may palliate the disease. This alone will heal it. Other antidotes may hide its deformity. This alone will work a perfect cure. An easy, good-natured temper may cover over selfishness in one man. A love of praise may conceal it in a second. A self-righteous ascetism and an affected spirit of self-denial may keep it out of sight in a third. But nothing will ever cut up selfishness by the roots, but the love of Christ revealed in the mind by the Holy Ghost and felt in the heart by simple faith. Once let a man see the full meaning of the words, Christ loved me and gave himself for me, and then he will delight to give himself to Christ and all that he has to his service. He will live to him not in order that he may be secure, but because he is secure already, he will work for him not that he may have life and peace, but because life and peace are his own already. Go to the cross of Christ, all you that want to be delivered from the power of selfishness. Go and see what a price was paid there to provide a ransom for your soul. Go and see what an astounding sacrifice was there made, that a door to eternal life might be provided for poor sinners like you. Go and see how the Son of God gave himself for you, and learn to think it a small thing to give yourself to him. The disease which ruined the rich man in the parable may be cured, but, oh, remember, there is only one real remedy. If you would not live to yourself, you must live to Christ. See to it that this remedy is not only known, but applied, not only heard of, but used. 1. And now let me conclude all by urging on every reader of these pages the great duty of self-inquiry. A passage of scripture like this parable ought surely to raise in many and one great searchings of heart. What am I? Where am I going? What am I doing? What is likely to be my condition after death? Am I prepared to leave the world? Have I any home to look forward to in the world to come? Have I put off the old man and put on the new? Am I really one with Christ and a pardoned soul? Surely such questions as these may well be asked when the story of the rich man and Lazarus has been heard. Oh, that the Holy Ghost may incline many a reader's heart to ask them. 2. In the next place I invite all readers who desire to have their souls saved 
and have no good account to give of themselves at present, to seek salvation while it can be found. I do entreat you to apply to him, by whom alone man can enter heaven and be saved, even Jesus Christ the Lord. He has the keys of heaven. He is sealed and appointed by God the Father to be the saviour of all that will come to him. Go to him in earnest and hearty prayer and tell him your case. Tell him that you have heard that he receiveth sinners and that you come to him as such. Luke 15, 2. Tell him that you desire to be saved by him in his own way and ask him to save you. Oh, that you may take this course without delay. Remember the hopeless end of the rich man. Once dead, there is no more change. 3. Last of all, I entreat all professing Christians to encourage themselves in habits of liberality toward all causes of charity and mercy. Remember that you are God's stewards and give money liberally, freely and without grudging, whenever you have an opportunity. You cannot keep your money forever. You must give account one day of the manner in which it has been expended. Oh, lay it out with an eye to eternity while you can. I do not ask rich men to leave their situations in life, give away all their property and go into the workhouse. This would be refusing to fill the position of a steward for God. I ask no man to neglect his worldly calling and to omit to provide for his family. Diligence in business is a positive Christian duty. Provision for those dependent on us is proper Christian prudence. But I ask you all to look around continually as they journey on and to remember the poor, the poor in body and the poor in soul. Here we are for a few short years. How can we do most good of our money while we are here? How can we so spend it as to leave the world somewhat happier and somewhat holier when we are removed? Might we not abridge some of our luxuries? Might we not lay out less upon ourselves and give more to Christ's cause and Christ's poor? Is there none we can do good to? Are there no sick, no poor, no needy, whose sorrows we might lessen and whose comforts we might increase? Such questions will never fail to elicit an answer from some quarter. I am thoroughly persuaded that the income of every religious and charitable society in England might easily be multiplied tenfold if English Christians would give in proportion to their means. There are none surely to whom such appeals ought to come home with such power as professing believers in the Lord Jesus. The parable of the text is a striking illustration of our position by nature and our debt to Christ. We all lay like Lazarus at heaven's gate, sick unto the death, helpless and starving. Blessed be God, we were not neglected as he was. Jesus came forth to relieve us. Jesus gave himself for us that we might have hope and live. For a poor Lazarus-like world he came down from heaven and humbled himself to become a man. For a poor Lazarus-like world he went up and down doing good, caring for men's bodies as well as souls until he died for us on the cross. I believe that in giving to support works of charity and mercy, we are doing that which is according to Christ's mind. And I ask readers of these pages to begin the habit of giving, if they have never begun it before, and to go on with it increasingly, if they have begun. I believe that in offering a warning against worldliness and covetousness, I have done no more than bring forward a warning, especially called for by the times. And I ask God to bless the consideration of these pages to many souls. End of chapter 13. Recording by Ruth.